Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service. As Will said, we are continuing our short series on Romans 9 to 11. These chapters expose important differences that exist within Protestantism. For centuries, Christians have debated how best to set God's sovereignty alongside human free will within a coherent framework. The good news is that interpreters on both sides of the debate believe that Holy Scripture is inspired and inerrant, and we both seek to honor God with how we interpret His Word. It will become clear in this study that I part company with my Christian brothers and sisters in the Reformed tradition in how to interpret Romans 9 to 11. So I want to begin by acknowledging my debt to them and my deep respect for the immense contribution they have made uh, to my own Christian walk. Every Christian should be grateful to God for giving us godly and thoughtful men like John Stott and Tim Keller. Those gracious servants of the Lord may disagree with some of the things I will say today, but it was they who taught me how to disagree well with other believers. And so at its deepest level, our fellowship is unimpaired. There's one other preliminary remark uh, to be made. I will do my best this morning simply to hold up Scripture uh, so that you can make up your own mind. So you may want to offer up a quick prayer just now to ask God for clarity of thought, and then make sure you have the text in front of you and resolve to look carefully at it and see what it actually says. We'll spend most of our time in chapter 10, uh, but I will make a few observations on chapter 11 towards the end of our study. Romans 9 to 11 is a densely packed passage of Scripture, densely argued. When approaching any tough bit of Scripture, uh, any tough bit of logic, it's often helpful to sneak a look at the author's conclusion uh, before you dive into his arguments. And the conclusion Paul arrives at in this passage of Scripture is recorded for us in chapter 11, verse 32. Remember that Paul began this whole section in anguish of heart. But as he discovers the sheer genius of God's wisdom, his strategy in human history, he ends up shouting triumphantly in verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. He then spends the rest of the chapter declaring this great doxology of worship, praising the wisdom of God. Think of that verse again. You see, if, if I'm to persuade you to take some medicine, I must first convince you that you are sick. And that is God's strategy in human history. He so orchestrates the affairs of men that we discover that we are, in fact, rebellious sinners who are incapable of saving ourselves. And then he offers us mercy. I note that last clause with the utmost care. God's heartfelt desire is to have mercy on all. What a God we worship. We do not worship some impersonal rule like karma. We do not bow before unyielding fate. We do not approach a God who decides our eternal destiny within his own inscrutable counsels. That's not the God of the Bible. Our God, if you like, wears his heart on his sleeve. His heartfelt desire is to have mercy on us all. He will do everything he can, everything that is logically possible to save you. As the apostle Peter famously said, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So that conclusion should be our guiding light throughout the series of talks. God's heartfelt desire is to have mercy on all. But how on earth are we to learn that wonderful truth? Well, in chapter 9 of Romans that Danny took us through last week, 
Paul sets out God's strategy to save as many people as logically possible. Paul tells us that God chooses certain individuals and groups to act as adverts for His mercy. He chooses, if you like, some people to be like a giant billboard uh, that the rest of us can see. And on the billboard we read, I was a selfish, rebellious sinner. Nothing of merit in me at all, but God showed me mercy. And so people driving past would say, I know that man. He's called Jim Crooks, and he is indeed an unpleasant and selfish man. God showed him mercy? Wow. Well, if God would show someone like that mercy, perhaps he would show me mercy. So that's God's strategy. But there is an apparent flaw in it. What if some people that God chooses to advertise his mercy end up refusing his mercy? What does God do when they refuse to have their face appear on that mercy billboard? Well, says Paul in chapter 9, first of all, God endures that disobedience for a long, long, long time. He gives them opportunity after opportunity to repent. But it is possible to say no to God one time too many. That happened to a man called Pharaoh. He hardened his heart against God time after time, and eventually God made that man stand in his choice. He became like a billboard on the other side of the road that read, I am Pharaoh. I refused God's mercy, and now I am under God's wrath. Don't travel the path that I walked. Now, it's really important to note that God isn't just being mean or vindictive here. Last week, Danny showed us the divine genius behind what we might call the wrath billboard. God used Pharaoh, used his rebellion to draw more people into his salvation. There was a nation called the Gibeonites. There was an individual woman, Canaanite woman called Rahab. And they came to God for mercy precisely because they saw what God had done to Pharaoh. That is how God's sovereignty works, argues Paul. It might be what we will call responsive sovereignty. God chooses some people to advertise his mercy. If they refuse that mercy repeatedly, then they end up advertising his wrath. Now, God never sets out to create an advert for wrath. If you have the text of Romans 9 in front of you, you will see in verse 23, his instruments of mercy have been prepared beforehand for glory. But in the preceding verse, his instruments of wrath are not prepared beforehand. That key word is missing. So, so everything depends on how these groups or individuals respond to God's offer of mercy. That is the deal. A sovereign God offers them a bounded choice. He says, you can either end up on this side of the road as a big billboard advertising my mercy, or you can end up on the other side of the road as a billboard warning people about my wrath. That's the deal. There is no third option. One way or another, I will use you to direct people into my offer of mercy. Now, as far as the chosen instruments themselves are concerned, God will do everything he can to mold them into an advert for his mercy. But if they keep resisting his Holy Spirit, the phrase Stephen uses in the book of Acts, if they insist on remaining stubbornly unrepentant, then he will eventually make them stand in their own choice. Because that is how responsive sovereignty works. Well, we might be thinking to ourselves, that's all very well as a big historical strategy, but I still don't see how it translates to me as an individual. Billboards are helpful, but they can't save me on their own. What about my own personal salvation? To put it in blunt terms, why are some individuals saved and others aren't? 
I'm going to humbly suggest that the biggest mistake people make in their interpretation of these three chapters is that they try to answer the question about why individuals are saved uh, from and they try to answer that from chapter 9 rather than waiting for Paul to address that question in chapter 10. In chapter 10, Paul examines the three main reasons why some people are not saved. And he then explains the two-step process by which people do get saved. So I'm simply going to move through the text in a methodical manner. It will appear on the screen, and I hope you have the text in front of you. We'll go through it paragraph by paragraph and examine the reasons why some people don't get saved and how some people do get saved. And when we get to the end of the chapter, you can then draw your own conclusions about the relationship between God's sovereignty and your own personal choice. So let's read verses 1 to 4 of Romans chapter 10. Paul is talking to of his fellow Jews, and he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the first reason why some people don't get saved is that they prefer a gospel of works to the gospel of grace. In fact, this is the main reason why the Jews of Paul's day had rejected the gospel. Now, they were zealous in their religion, but they were determined to build their own righteousness rather than submit to God's righteousness. In the language we developed for the previous chapter, these people wanted to be big billboards that advertised their own merit rather than be billboards that advertised God's mercy. No true believer, says Paul, will try to live by law because true believers are dead to the law. Christ is the end of the law as far as Christians are concerned. So that's reason number one, okay? Some people aren't saved because they prefer a gospel of works to the gospel of grace. Let's now move on to verses five to seven. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, these verses can seem a little obscure, so I'm going to give you the headline interpretation and then defend that headline. The second reason why people don't get saved is because they deny the objective work of God in history. In other words, they deny the central truth claims of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate and that he died and rose again. They deny the incarnation and the resurrection. So in verse 6, Paul talks of people who say, who will ascend into heaven? Now, people who ask that are willfully denying the fact that God has already descended from heaven. And in verse 7, Paul talks about people who say, who will descend into the abyss? People who ask that are willfully denying the event we call the resurrection. Now, you may be wondering why Paul couldn't have said that. Uh, more obviously and more simply, but he is deliberately echoing words that Moses uses in Deuteronomy. And the point that both Paul and Moses are making is that God has come close to us. We don't need to search the outer reaches of reality in an attempt to make contact with God. He has come to us. Now, people who simply refuse to accept that claim, even after they've been presented with all the evidence, cannot be saved. You can't be saved 
if you deny the objective work of God in history. That's the second reason. Let's now read on verses 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, to understand the third main reason why people don't get saved, we can usefully compare these verses with the point we learned from the preceding ones. You see, it's one thing to deny the objective work of God in history, to deny the incarnation and the resurrection, but it's equally bad to resist the subjective work of God in our hearts. Salvation is God's initiative. No one can just wake up one morning and decide that they will initiate contact with God. Or at least if they think they're doing that, they'll soon realize that God has been working in their lives for a very long time beforehand. John chapter 6 verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Reformed theologians try to use that verse to argue for what they call irresistible grace. But the verse simply says that no one can come to Christ for salvation unless they have been drawn to that point by the Father. It doesn't say that everyone who is so drawn will automatically come and ask for salvation. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Paul's point here is that God does absolutely everything he can to get us to the point where we confess Jesus as Lord. He reveals the truth about the Lord Jesus so intimately by his Spirit. It's as if God puts the very words that we have to speak on the tips of our tongue so that all we have to do is confess the truth with our mouths. Now, these are the verses we teach our children. And children down through the centuries have understood them with childlike faith. So it would be very wrong for any theologian to try to undermine the truth that sits so obviously on the surface of the text. Salvation comes through faith. And inner faith, if it is genuine, always produces an audible confession. I've got saved, we tell our loved ones. Jesus Christ is now my Lord and Savior. I believe in my heart that he died for my sins and that he rose again. Now notice the emphasis on the word all in those verses. Verse 11 talks about everyone who believes. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The offer is made to all. And perhaps the most crucial clause comes in verse 12. There is no distinction. Paul has used that phrase before, hasn't he? Back in chapter 3, when he put all of humanity in the dock and argued that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who did he put into the dock? All of us. He put the Gentile pagans of chapter 1 alongside the religious Jews of chapter 3. He put us into the same dock and he said, there is no difference. But now with delight, he completely inverts the solemn verdict of the divine court in chapter 3 and says once again, there is no difference. Anyone and everyone can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Anyone can believe on his name. 
So to summarize, we can see the three big reasons why some people don't get saved. Some prefer a gospel of works to the gospel of grace. Some deny the objective work of God in history, the incarnation and the resurrection. And some resist the subjective work of God in our hearts. Those are the only reasons why someone might end up in hell. The remainder of chapter 20 sets out the positive process by which a person becomes a believer. There are two steps, explains Paul. First, an individual hears the word of Christ. That's verses 14 to 18. And then they fall into God's open arms. That's verses 19 to 21. So let's read verses 14 to 18 together. Let me warn you uh, that in verse 14, I will use a more literal translation from the one given in the ESV because it departs at that point from the original Greek. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now, we've already said in general terms that before anyone can confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, God will have done a lot of work in their lives to get them to that point. Everyone, reformed or not, agrees with that statement. No one comes to God on their own. In these verses, Paul explains the simple process that we call evangelism. So, a preacher sent by God, inspired by him, preaches the good news of the gospel. Now, for conversion to occur in someone, they mustn't only hear the preacher's voice. Many of you will know this from your own experience. At a deeper level, they hear the word of Christ himself in their hearts. That's why I didn't go with the ESV translation of verse 14. Paul doesn't ask, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? More accurately, the Greek says, how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? The process of getting saved isn't about the transmission and reception of information between a preacher and his audience. It involves someone hearing the very word of Christ, as it says later in the text, speaking into their heart. Now, this raises a major difficulty for my Reformed friends because they insist that a person must first be regenerated before they can have any awareness of God or his truth. Trying to explain the gospel to an unregenerate person, we are told, is like shouting to corpses in a graveyard in the hope that they will respond. We are dead in trespasses and sin, and corpses can't hear, goes the argument. Well, the first thing we notice in this passage is that Paul disagrees. Verse 18, but I ask, he says, have they not heard? Indeed they have. I would gently suggest that this idea that regeneration must precede faith does not align with the witness of Scripture. Just because I am spiritually dead doesn't mean that I am morally dead. John chapter 5, verse 25 says explicitly that the spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Our Lord repeatedly tells unregenerate men and women to use their moral judgment. They are to judge his teaching, his works. They're to use their moral judgment on themselves 
Just read John chapter 7 through 10. That argument is made repeatedly. Think about the grounds on which people are condemned. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. Now, that criterion only makes sense if unregenerate people are sufficiently aware of the light's existence to walk away. So the shouting in a graveyard story isn't fair because a spiritually dead person is still morally alive and is capable of hearing God's voice. Anyway, when you read Ephesians 2, the so-called corpses are walking about. Now, we actually learn that lesson, the lesson that unregenerate people, that sinners who have not been saved yet saved, can hear God's voice. We learn that very early on in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam sinned, he heard the voice of God in the garden calling for him. Now, I know this is a sensitive topic, so all I'm going to do here is list out some examples from John's gospel which show that with complete consistency, the giving of life never precedes coming to faith in Christ. Chapter 5, verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 5, verse 40, you refuse to come to me to have life. Chapter 6, verse 40, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. So, in both logical and temporal terms, uh, uh, faith is prior to regeneration. I won't even take time to quote John 3.16 because you'll see the same order there. So the first, step Paul, the first step Paul describes in these verses is hearing. Not hearing a preacher give information, but hearing the very word of Christ in one's heart. Now before we leave these verses, I'm aware that they leave a huge question in our minds about what happens to those who have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And I will attempt to address that question next week when we put all the pieces of the jigsaw together in the final study of the series. So for now we can say that hearing Christ is the first step in getting saved. The second step is found in our final verses. For the sake of time, we'll just read verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I love that verse. I come across so many young adults who have been taught that God is some remote and unapproachable figure. He's inscrutable and enigmatic, they've been taught, far beyond their understanding. That is nonsense. The image here is of a father holding out his arms to a toddler who is about to take a step for the first time. He stands there with outstretched arms, waiting for his child to fall into his arms. And I think that is such an important insight into the psychology of conversion. In the end, it's not all about logical arguments. The sinner turns to God with the instinct that he will be caught and held. What sort of a father would hold out his hands to a child and then withdraw them at the last second, allowing the child to fall to the ground? Do you think God is like that? Well then, the offer he makes in verse 21 must be genuine. God holds out his hands and appeal to everyone even the disobedient and contrary and stubborn-hearted. And it is a real appeal. The notion of a decretive will may make sense to Greek philosophers, but it is a stain on the character of the God of the Bible. Let's now take a few minutes to survey chapter 11 
of Romans. I must warn you, it deals with a rather controversial problem because uh, we haven't had enough controversy. Uh, and I want to take just a few minutes to talk about that before we close this study. How should Christians think about the nation of Israel? Should we regard it, that nation as a piece of scaffolding that God used to bring Christ to us, but which is now redundant? Or do we believe that God has unfinished business to conclude with his earthly people? Reformed theologians take the first view. They argue that the Old Testament promises that God gives to Israel are fulfilled in the Christian church. The church is the replacement Israel, if you like. But others, including myself, take a different view. They agree with Reformed theologians that the church currently fulfills many of the roles that Israel used to perform on the world stage. That's not something we disagree on. But we insist that the promises God gave to the nation of Israel still stand. They cannot be spiritualized away. Those promises will be fulfilled when Christ returns. At that point, Israel as a nation will acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Messiah. To help you make up your own mind about that issue, we're going to read some verses from chapter 11. But before we do that, let me just make a, a couple of observations about church history. Because I think it's a really important context uh, for Romans 11. For the first three centuries of the Christian church, most Christians believed that God had unfinished business with the nation of Israel. They taught that when Christ returned, he would be acknowledged by the Jewish people, and then he would set up a kingdom on this old earth that would last for a thousand years. That's why that view is sometimes called historic premillennialism. But in the fourth and fifth centuries, a new interpretation came along, one which spiritualized the idea of Christ's kingdom. According to this doctrine, which is called amillennialism, the church was now the new Israel in God's eyes. So there was no need to look for a fulfillment of God's promises to the nation of Israel in the future. Now, it could well be a coincidence, but this new doctrine emerged at a time when Christendom began to persecute the Jewish people. Christianity became the new state religion. And under the influence of powerful clerics, all the old legal protections afforded to the Jews by the Romans were swept away. Most of you will know the ghastly history of anti-Semitism within Christendom that followed right up to our recent past. Now, I would like you to keep that bit of church history in your minds as we now read chapter 11, verses 17 to 18. Now, these words might seem strange to you because Paul is using a gardening metaphor. He describes Gentile Christians as a wild olive shoot that have, has been grafted into the nourishing root of a cultivated olive tree. And this is what he says to Gentiles like you and me. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. I cannot read that warning about arrogance without reflecting on Christendom's appalling treatment of the Jewish people from the fourth century onwards. It is clear that Paul is using this metaphor in a historical sense. Historically, he says, Christianity emerged from Judaism. Never forget that, he says. Never forget the debt you owe to a nation that brought light into the world while our ancestors were running around baying at the moon. That flow of history comes to a climax in verses 25 and 26, which we now read. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, 
The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So Paul in these verses has shifted his focus historically from the past to the future. And he suddenly sees that Israel's unbelief, that thing which has caused him such anguish, is only temporary. One day his flesh and blood, his kinsmen, will acknowledge their deliverer. Now the really interesting thing about Paul's words here is that he uses a phrase first used by the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 21. At that point in Luke's gospel, the Lord Jesus has just prophesied the fall of Jerusalem, that thing which occurred in AD 70. And he says that Jerusalem won't be completely restored to the Jewish people until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Now, if you're interested in that issue, I'm going to suggest you read Romans 11 over on your own time uh, a couple of times slowly. The flow of thought goes something like this. Paul realizes that God has not abandoned the nation of Israel. Yes, at this moment in Paul's life, the nation is on the verge of apostasy. But there had been moments like this before. This moment is like that time when the prophet Elijah felt that he was the only Israelite who hadn't given up on God's grand plan of salvation. But God told him he wasn't the only one. There was a small faithful remnant of faithful Jews who would keep the flame alight. Now, Paul, looking back on history, could see that Elijah's despair was unwarranted. Israel's story was not finished. It wasn't discarded. The small remnant who kept the flame alive is described in verse 16 as a first fruits, a down payment, if you like, a, a guarantee that one day God would draw the whole nation back to himself. In the meantime, says Paul, God is using on Israel's unbelief. Remember the vessels of wrath and mercy? God is using Israel's unbelief to draw countless millions of Gentiles into his redemptive plan. The fact that we're sitting here now is proof of that claim. But one day, says Paul, God will complete his unfinished business with his earthly people. One day the nation as a whole will acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Messiah. This old world won't end with a disappointing whimper of a spent firework. The goal is not for Christians to escape into some spiritualized kingdom that floats around in the heavens. God has unfinished business with this old world, and God never leaves anything unfinished. The role given to Adam in Genesis 1 will be realized by Christ when he turns to reign. In this study, we move methodically through chapter 10 and gallop madly through chapter 11. I hope I have done enough to guide those of you who want to study chapter 11 properly in your own time. Next week, we'll, next week we will take a step back from all the detail of Romans 9 to 11 and ask ourselves about the relationship between free will and God's sovereignty. But for now, we're done, and I'll hand back to William.